0: is proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for magic The gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name's Ben Warney, and joining me on the
0: line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, how has the acting been going this week for you? The acting, as you call it, has been going... Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm in two shows now. We started rehearsals for one on Tuesday and we're in performances for another one. The one that I'm in performances for, I'm like barely in. I'm mostly playing magic backstage. As uh, a lot, I felt bad. A lot of, I've had a lot of opponents that have uh, been like, hey, I really like, uh, like the podcast or whatever in my sealed leagues that I've been playing. And then I'm like, uh, BRB, I have to go do a scene real quick back in a couple minutes. <laughs> That's the dream, though, right? Get That's a, the get dream a, a little bit get to play magic backstage. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not mad. I'm feeling pretty
1: good about my summer so far. I hear your microphone also pulled double duty. You sent me a sweet picture of an audition tape
0: you made for a jazz singer. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a movie filming in Pittsburgh that my agent had me put an audition tape together for and uh, asked me to like, you know, sing a song acapella as like a 20s jazz singer. And I was like, well, all these photos of like these old timey jazz singers have those like big bulky microphones. And I was like, I've got a big bulky microphone, so I brought that on as a, my little prop. I think it looked pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> How's things with you? They're going well.
1: No complaints. Summer's rolling along. We're just starting to get marching band show music in here, and I've been drafting up a storm. made some life changes. I'm two days off Dive Mountain Dew and been working out, lifting, running, all good. That's amazing. Yeah. And you've started cooking. Is that is that correct? That is correct. I'm baking some chicken. I've brown some ground beef i'm baby steps you wouldn't call it cooking but it's cooking as far as i'm concerned the microwave has made it off of my stove You, you are converting
0: raw food into cooked food i would i would call that cooking excellent All right. So we got a lot to do and very little time in which to do it, Ben. So let's start off by checking in on that leaderboard. Where are you at? Yeah, I've done a little bit of everything this week. I've done one
1: more war MTGO draft, so I'm 65 drafts deep on MTGO, 143 and 50, 28 trophies and a 74% win rate. We finished off this awesome deck that you and I drafted together. It's now highlighted on my Twitch stream. So if anybody wants to go check that out, if you're looking for some quality war drafts, this was way too much deck for me to handle.
0: I will say that Drafting that deck with you and playing those games is I think the best magic content I have ever been a part of. So I would (laughs) highly recommend checking that out, folks.
1: Yeah, it's highlighted. So you can go to my channel and look at the VODs and it should it should pop out if you search the highlighted videos. On Arena, I'm now 33 and 9 in best of one over five total drafts with three trophies and a 79% win rate and 25 and 7 over best of three drafts. Uh, That's six total drafts and three trophies there for a 78% win rate. So 11 drafts split between best of one and best of three, six trophies, and about the same win rate in both formats.
0: I did a few arena war drafts as well. I did a couple best of ones because I was like, oh, I want to get some like stats if we're going to talk about the bot drafts, which is what we were initially going to do before you realize that this was probably our last episode where we we're going to talk about War of the Spark. So instead, we decided to do our patented 50 takes episode, which we're about to dive into. So I did, I think I won three and then four three and best of one. And I was like, well, I'm done with this. And then I did. <laughs> it's just <laughs> oh, awful. No. Like the swings are just so wild. It's not fun for me. Like, you know, that's where it feels most princely to me is your opponent just lands a god eternal and you're like oh i have no way to like sideboard or be prepared for this in games two and three i'm just gonna lose this game and have to move on with my life and so i did i moved on to uh, best of three and i five won with a blue white deck with god eternal oketra and time wipe but those games took so long like playing six whole rounds with a draft deck that's more than a sealed league Yeah, best of three takes a while. It's a lot of magic with the same deck. It's a lot of magic. Yeah. And then
1: moving over to Modern Horizons, I've done 28 drafts now, 53 and 31 record, six trophies, 63% win rate. So I'm still struggling over there, but I do, the more I play, the more comfortable I'm getting. And a big thing that has shifted for me this week is that I've moved ninjas up in my pick order. So I've got Moonblade Shinobi as the number three blue common now. And I'm taking Smoke Shaper and whatever the other 6-3 Lava Axe Ninja is called. I never remember that card's name. New Moon or something like that. Sure, sure. Ninja the New Moon. I could be making that 100% up. I have no idea. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Anyway, moving those cards in my pick order. And I've finally gotten into ninjas for the first time this week because I hadn't been making it in there prior. So that felt great. And I
0: I do think I've changed some things that are going to help out. Nice. I Because we don't have a spreadsheet, we just got to get a spreadsheet where we can keep track of sealed stuff. We don't really have that. I've just been doing sealed nonstop for Modern Horizons. I'm really liking it, mostly with three twos this week. And I think like a two, three and a four, one sprinkled in there. No more trophies for me. Still at three sealed trophies. So I'm sorry that I'm not being good about tracking my record. It's also tough. Like I'm switching between like, I usually am just on my desktop, but I'm on my laptop a lot because I'm playing during this play. But uh uh <laughs> Hashtag first world problems. Hashtag first world problems, indeed. I just wanted to do a quick shout out here. So like like I said, we're not really going to be talking about like breaking the bots. We have some arena info here, but... The best-of-one ranked format for Limited has now switched back to Ravnica Allegiance, and I wanted to direct folks who maybe weren't listening to our show at the time that we did back-to-back episodes on Ravnica Allegiance. One, episode 90 was drafting with the bots, where we talked about drafting with bots in general, but using Ravnica Allegiance as a framework, and unless they've updated them significantly, that should still be very relevant for what's going on on Arena now. And then the next episode, Lords of Limited 91, is Ravnica Allegiance 50 takes in 50 minutes, so a similar style to what we're about to do for War, but Giving you like a nice quick rundown. Maybe if you are newer to limited or whatever and didn't play a lot of Ravnica Allegiance draft, that should be a nice quick catch up for you before diving into those ranked drafts. Yeah, definitely check those out. All right. So a little bit more housekeeping here, folks. Each and every week we want to make sure that we talk about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you can give back to the show if you so choose. Of course, the show will always be free, but we want to make sure we give folks a few little perks for giving back to the show and the base level. Any amount that you give to the show, you're going to get access to the Lords of Limited Discord, which just continues to pop off. It's running like a well-oiled machine these days, Ben. Just smooth, steady. All the channels are very focused. We're getting even more channel suggestions. You know, when I first made that channel suggestion part of the Discord. It was really just for that initial revamp that we did a few weeks ago. But I like that it stuck around, and we're continuing to get some good ideas from folks who are like, hey, what about this? And it really helps us continue to improve the Discord each and every week, really just make sure that it's working its best for all of our listeners and users of the Discord. So I'm really happy to have that continuing to evolve. we have got some higher tier donations. Go ahead and check those out. We got to get another stretch goal out there, Ben. Very, very excited to have so much support, and we want to make sure we shout out each and every one of our new patrons The first week that they joined. So this week, we're going to welcome Ben P, Z-Man, Bernstein, Karen, Jesse, G, Julian, player number 11, Matt, Max, Henry, Adam, Jason, Pick, and Ben A. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah,
1: cannot say thank you enough. Everybody that chooses to support the podcast, you guys are my heroes. We also are recently sponsored by Coalesce Apparel and Design, Magic's newest apparel company, and in honor of LGBT Pride Month, they have a new transgender awareness shirt that they've made with Autumn Burchette. All proceeds go towards Trans Lifeline, a national trans-led 501c3 organization dedicated to improving the quality of trans lives, and you can head over to their website, coalesceapparel.shop to check out all their unique designs, as well as that Knights of Autumn shirt, and even more importantly one week until Lords of Limited t-shirts are coming your way in July through Coalesce Apparel. So really, really
0: hyped to have the best shirt you're ever going to own be available in approximately one week. I imagine on July 1st, Coalesce's servers are just going to go down with all the traffic that they're (laughs) going to get from people buying our shirts. That would be awesome if we crashed Coalesce's servers. All right, so uh, before we dive into the 50 takes for War of the Spark here, uh, we did want to run down some MTG Arena stats that have been provided to us by Rob, aka Viral Misnomer on Twitch and Discord. He's put together a ton of data through his website 17lands.com, which I would highly recommend people start to use because it's an incredible tool for tracking arena bot draft data and a great way for us as a community to figure out how to beat the bots. So the more people that sign up for 17lands.com, the more data that we get to collect and the more that we as a community can figure out how to bust these bots on Arena even more. And this is not like any sort of like sponsorship or anything. I just think this is a really cool service that he's provided and a a very cool thing that we as a community can tap into.
1: Right. I recently signed up this week when I was doing my Arena drafts that I could get my data in there as well. And it's really awesome. It's not super visually fancy, but the amount of information you get and how easy it is to use is really sweet. So at the end of a draft, if you just have it open running while you're drafting, at the end of a draft, you can click view data. It's got your record there. It's got the draft. It's got games you've played. Anything you would want is there. And then the fact that as a Lords of Limited community, everyone that's using it and or people outside the podcast, whatever, the more people that start using it, it'll be a resource for us on the podcast to have a huge
0: source of data, which is, would be really cool, I think. Yeah, I agree. So here's a summary of the info found from this collection. It's not a huge sample size, but I still think it's interesting and helpful to check it out. So the first point is that the bots have been trained to take most rares and mythics highly. This is sort of, I think, after an update from the initial run of War of the Spark on Arena where they were not doing so. You know, we had a lot of tweets of people seeing Ugins like pick two or pick three, which just like shouldn't happen because it's a colorless bomb. So they've been trained to take these highly now. Even the worst ones like Narset's Reversal have not been seen past pick seven. The lower ranked rares uh, like Feather the Redeemed and Dreadhorde Arcanist still have an average pick of about 2.1. So they're still going before pick three. And thanks to data collected from Magic Fluey, which is where folks upload their draft logs from MTGO, the average number of rares seen in a draft on MTGO tgo is 8.5 and on arena it's 4.3 so rares are scarce on arena is uh sort of the the takeaway there that
1: is surprising to me. I would not have thought that just intuitively, but that's pretty interesting. There's also a wheeling chart in this data that shows exactly how likely it is for a card to wheel. So some cards that are very playable, like Dreadmalkin, Lazatep's Plating, even good, I would say, have a fairly high likelihood of wheeling. And that that's cool that that mirrors my experience because those were two cards that I had picked out of my head that go way too late on Arena. So it's interesting to see that the wheeling chart lines up with that. And then other cards that, you know, I'm really happy to have make my deck that seem to not be cards that you have to prioritize that are fairly likely to wheel, according to this wheeling chart, are Sahili's Silver Wing, Teferi's Time Twist, and Aid the Fallen. So you can pretty consistently rely on those three cards coming around.
0: To that point, Toll of the Invasion is probably the common most underrated by the bots. It has an average take rate at pick 6.7 which i think is pretty late for that card but aside from these outliers i did not find scrolling through like the average takes from all of the cards in the set i didn't find anything to be super egregious the biggest anomaly in Ravnica allegiance and guilds of ravnica was like the gates not being taken highly enough by the bots or like being taken weirdly by the bots we don't really have that here and so there's not that as much outliers in in that sense
1: And as far as your opponents that you're likely to play against, you're much more likely to play against opponents playing blue almost 50% of the time, 49%, than white, only 35% of the time people are playing white. And about 20% of the time people are splashing a third color, although it might even be higher than that because those people might be losing sometimes before we see the third land or whatever, the third splash color come out during the games. So ish, you know, one out of five times people are splashing.
0: Yeah. Best of 1 and best of 3 win rates when on play and draw are fairly similar like between best of 1 and best of 3. Players win slightly more often on the draw. It was about a 2% bump when on the draw, which I thought was interesting. And mulligans are devastating as always. This was pretty a pretty good reminder I thought. Uh win rates drop by about 20% when you go from 7 to 6 cards.
1: Yeah, that draw thing has to just be an anomaly from the sample size of the data. There's Mm -hmm. playing being on the play in war is where it's at. I would think so. And the speed of best of one and best of three is about the same with best of three being just slightly faster than best of one, which, again, doesn't necessarily make tons of sense to me because you have the opportunity to sideboard in games two and three in best of three. So I would think that would slow the game down. So 15 percent of games are over by turn five and 50 percent are over by turn nine. Average number of turns per game is 10 in the format.
0: That seems about right to me. It doesn't seem like a blisteringly fast format.
1: Yeah, but you just have to get on board
0: early. But once you do, once both players do, the game takes some time to develop. For sure. So really, really thankful to Rob for sharing the insider information there. Would highly recommend folks checking out 17lands.com. If you're playing on Arena, sign up, get your data in there as well, and also reap the benefits of everyone else using it.
1: Yeah, and that'll let us you know, do more episodes focused on Arena in the future, I think.
0: Yeah, I just want to make like a, a quick little, you know, announcement or apology, maybe I feel like the rapid succession of sets coming out this summer has sort of left us like flying by the seat of our pants a little bit. We were hoping to do a war bot drafting episode this week, but just the way things have shaken out, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. We're hoping to fold those in for each set in the future. Just didn't happen to work out with this set with how fast, you know, course Set 20 is coming out in just a few weeks. Really crazy. Yeah, uh, I was like very excited as a. I was like, oh, there's gonna be all these sets. But then we were like mapping out podcast stuff. I was like, it's too fast. (laughs) I want to have so much I want to do. All right. Well, speaking of fast, we have some rapid fire points to get through here. We are going to be doing 50 takes in probably under 50 minutes, hopefully. Then you want to start us off with point number one, point number one,
1: board presence, people, you just have to get on board in this format. And if that means playing bad two drops, quote unquote, you got to play bad two drops because just the dynamic with the three and four mana uncommon planeswalkers, you have to be able to make some attempt to pressure those cards to let them not be very, very good, because if they go uncontested, they're very, very good. And if they go contested and maybe you get two damage in on them, they go from very good to eh average
0: or maybe even slightly below average. Right. I mean, I think the whole format really revolves around pressuring and protecting the uncommon planeswalkers. I think that's sort of like my umbrella statement about how this limited format feels. I agree completely. And to that point number two, the uncommon planeswalkers are better than you think. I would say maybe with the exception of Kiora, which I was like kind of high on at the start when I was drafting green red a fair amount and then like basically stopped drafting that archetype altogether. But the exception of Kiora, I think they're all I think they all have a place even Dovin has a place in the format and Ben your boy Teo what do you think about that
1: don't let the haters get you down Teo you stay strong I love you buddy we'll be talking about Teo's home in the format uh, at a later point here Number three, Grixis decks are the best decks. So red, black, blue, black, and blue, red are the top tier decks in the format. And I think people have heard us say that and think Grixis sometimes, like a couple people brought that up in Twitch chat, not a three color deck, two color decks of those three colors. And I think those decks are far and away the best decks in the format. I don't think it's particularly close. And I think, you know, we're going to reference this on arena, but I think if you're not drafting Grixis on arena, you're probably doing it wrong.
0: Yeah, I think you have to have some pretty big reasons to not do that at the rare or mythic level to like incentivize you to stay away from those three color pairs. And even at the end of the format here, or quote unquote end of the format, I don't know which of these decks is best. Blue black is my preference, but I stopped being able to draft that. It was like basically never open. I'm sure quarter calls would say red black. I know you were a blue red man for a lot of the time. I don't know if you've shifted to one of the other two. Yeah, I'm still a blue-red guy. That's my favorite style of deck. I think my order would go blue-red, blue-black, red-black. Yeah, I just have them all at the top. It doesn't really matter. They're all very good. I think there's some preference that lies in there, and just what's open is uh, going to lead you to a successful version of one of those three. Number four, be very careful of missing planeswalker statics. Oh my God, passive statics, whatever we're calling them. But that top chunk of text on all the planeswalkers is very important. And I'd say the ones that are the worst are the ones that like don't come up that often. I'd say Dovin is one that I bet gets missed in paper a <laughs> lot because on Magic Online, you can't not pay the tax for it. But I bet in paper, it gets missed a lot. That like extra one mana for artifacts, instance and sorceries, making like Saheeli Silver Ring cost five or whatever. Even sometimes like the very rare times that like Ashiok's passive where like players can't search libraries or like Tamiyo's passive where you can't discard or sacrifice stuff. So like someone goes to Toll of the Invasion of you just to make a one one like that stuff. When that comes up, it leads to such, such feel bads. But on arena, like Narset, when you try to draw an extra card, just makes this angry red pulse. Like, (laughs) no, try again. So be very aware of those on your side of the battlefield and your opponent's side of the battlefield. Point number five, this format is
1: very snowbally, which is ties in tandem directly with board presence people, you have to get on board. And if you do, and once you get an advantage with your uncommon planeswalker going uncontested, your advantage rapidly spirals out of control. Once you start to get the second activation on those uncommon planeswalkers and God forbid you proliferate onto it and get a third activation, that's when things really start to go crazy. But once you get ahead, it gets easier and easier to press your advantage. And once you start to get behind, you start to fall further and further behind very quickly.
0: Yeah, I think the snowballing nature has to do with one, the planeswalkers and two, the two mechanics that we're about to talk about here. Point number six, proliferate is an incredibly powerful and synergistic mechanic in the set. On surface, I was like, oh, when I first looked at the spoiler, I was like, oh yeah, proliferate. That's like kind of cool with planeswalkers or whatever. But it has so many applications. I mean, yes, it has applications with planeswalkers. It has a lot of synergy within green, white, and blue in particular with things getting counters on them with creatures. And it has synergy with the other mechanic, Amass, making the zombie armies with plus one, plus one counters already on them. There's just like a lot of little ways that proliferate really has a chance to snowball. I mean, these turns, we, we, we talked about early in the format, these turns that felt like inflection points or like the deciding turns of the game. And those were either like maybe when a third planeswalker activation happened or maybe a time when like a giant proliferate trigger happened where, you know, your opponent just got like one or two plus one, plus one counters on all of their creatures. And then it just felt like they were way too far ahead for you to come back.
1: Yeah, those turns where your opponent gets plus one, plus one, or plus two, plus two on their entire team of four to five creatures, those are the backbreaking ones. Number seven, a mass tacked on to spells that we've seen before. So for example, you know, coercion effect where two in a black, you look at target player's hand, they discard a card. Once those have a mass one tacked on, it really increases the value of those spells. So Callous Dismissal, Honor of the God Pharaoh, and Toll of the Invasion are all very good cards in this format. I think Honor the God Pharaoh was one that was a little underrated by everybody. And maybe even still, that card is my most drafted common on MTGO. And it's not particularly close. I love that card in every red deck. And I think it does exactly what red wants to do. And then some other cards, you know, that maybe are a mass specific, like Relentless Advance and Invade the City are generally not great cards. I think Invade the City starts to get playable once you get around 10 instants or sorceries in your deck. And Relentless Advance, I think is playable When you really need a spell, maybe in blue, red spells, and you're also kind of creature light, but even then, you're not super happy with it there. When you play a Relentless Advance and your opponent answers it with a Callous Dismissal, you just feel miserable.
0: Yeah i agree all three of those cards i mean told the invasion i kept wanting to get into the top three black commons that card i love that card so much i feel so good when i get to play that because it feels like it does more than you think right it's like you get to see your opponent's hand you get to take their best card out of it or like disrupt their plan along the way you make a little speed bump but then you get to play the rest of the game with the knowledge of like the four or five cards you saw from their hand it's
1: really really incredible Yeah, that's really important in this format because the gameplay matters so much and you know how to not get your planeswalkers blown out and you know how to set up things to blow out their planeswalkers.
0: Number eight, Rescuer Sphinx is much, much worse than it looks. I mean, on face value, like even a four mana, three, two flyer is like at rate. And then the fact that you get to make it a four, three flyer, maybe with a plus, plus one counter, which has synergy with proliferate. Maybe you even get to rebuy and enter the battlefield trigger from a cheaper creature or like pick up a guild globe to draw a card again. You just can't afford those shenanigans. Playing it on curve basically means you're never picking anything up because you can't afford that loss of tempo. And that's not a card you want in this format. You would much rather just be playing a four mana Planeswalker.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. This card is good on turn eight or turn nine, which is not a good card in this format. <laughs> right. Number nine, Lazatep Reaver is actually better than Vizier the Scorpion. I remember when I had this realization, I was doing a draft. It was, you know, middle of the format, middle-ish, maybe even later, like the last third of the format or something. And I had the pick of Vizier versus Lazatep Reaver and I was looking at it and I thought, I wonder if Lazatep Reaver is better than Vizier the Scorpion. And I decided, no, that can't be right. This is an uncommon. It's just more powerful. And then when the draft was done, I really wished I had Lazatep Reaver. And that was when I I just said, okay, it must be better. Two drops are so important in this format. And Lazatep Reaver is one of the best. It is the best black common two drop.
0: I mean, I think the fact that one of our previous points is like, you should be playing, quote unquote, bad two drops if you don't get the good ones. I think that just means that the good ones are that much better because you're so happy to have them and they do so much work in terms of going back to our first point of the games being about protecting your own Planeswalkers and pressuring your opponents. Number 10, Boros and Orzhov are the weakest decks in the format. So if we feel very strongly that the three Grixis color pairs are the best, I feel pretty strongly that these two decks are the worst. And that's not to say that you can't get good versions of them and that we haven't trophied with versions of these decks. But I think I would be hard avoiding this. And this sort of leads to the point of like, I think white is the consensus worst color in the format and can lead you to two of these, the four options being two of the worst decks in the format.
1: Yeah, I agree. I'm only drafting Boros and Orzov when I get pushed into them. And when you do get pushed into them, oftentimes they're very open. Those are two of my higher win rate color pairs because I've only drafted them like four or five times and I've trophied with them almost every time I've drafted them because I've only done it when I really got forced into doing it. Number 11, the six drops in Grixis are good, but interchangeable. So Tithebearer Giant, Invading Manticore, and Kiora's Dambreaker are good spells, but you really don't necessarily want multiples, and you don't really care which one you have. I think Manticore is the best of the three, generally, Mm -hmm. but they're so close that it doesn't really matter, and the first copy, I think, is pretty good, and once you get into your second copy, it goes down rapidly, and you don't need to pick them very highly, because generally, over the course of the three packs, you're going to get access to one of the three when you're in the Grixis Colors
0: so funny to me like these cards I'm like these are good and then bulwark giant the six drop and white I'm like that's like good sometimes and definitely good out of the sideboard and then primordial worm is a card I never want to put in my deck yep I agree number 12 trusted pegasus is a good card but leads towards drafting bad decks and this is sort of the problem with white in general so it's got these like good removal spells that common in law Rune enforcer and wanderer strike and then trusted pegasus which is a good aggressive card but doesn't have the meat to back it up there aren't like really good two drops to curve into it in white um it doesn't have big creatures to like launch into the air not that like white should but you know you look around like pairing it with other colors pairing it with blue it doesn't really matter that it's giving another creature flying and white blue doesn't really want to be an aggressive deck like the most aggressive deck is white green that it's going to pair with probably or white red, but like white green really wants to proliferate and make creatures bigger rather than like just slamming big dudes already. It just doesn't really slot into anything very neatly. And I think it leaves it in an awkward spot where you think it's a good card and it is a good card, but it doesn't quite have a great home in the format. Yeah, I think red white's its best home. Yeah, I would agree. But even then you're like, what are you doing? You're playing you want to curve that into the four one haste in red, but that's not a very good card.
1: Yeah, I got smashed by the 4-1 Haster last night on Arena. My opponent was playing three copies and it wrecked me. Yikes. Number 13, the five color green deck is a great plan B in a draft that doesn't have clear signals. So this would be using like stuff like New Horizons, the Leyline Prowler. It's really base green, black, but getting all that fixing, the premium fixing and splashing whatever good cards come your way. And I think The trick to this is getting the good rares or mythics. So once you lock up those good early rares, mythics, or maybe your opponents have locked in their colors and you reap the rewards in pack three a little bit, but picking up the fixing and make sure you have the opportunity to play those powerful cards is a great plan B strategy in draft.
0: And I would just throw out a caveat here. Wait till pack three. It's going to seem a little dicey, but I think pack three is when you're going to really reap the rewards because that's when people have settled into their colors and you're going to have the opportunity to pick up the powerful cards they pass because they can't cast them. Number 14, Vraska Swarms Eminence is the best uncommon in the set. Now, this is a little bit of a hot take here. These are 50 takes after all. I think Kasmina and Angrath are certainly up there and maybe even interchangeable and maybe even should edge out Vraska here, but I am just time and again very, very impressed by how Vraska totally wrecks some board states. Number 15, the Karn of the Great Creator is a great card for Limited. I, you were
1: the first person to really champion this, I think. I have not played with this card yet, but I've played against it from opponents. And the first time an opponent played it against me, I kind of scoffed. And I was like, that card's not good in Limited. And then they got a Saheeli Silver Silverwing, and then they got a God Pharaoh Statue and proceeded to beat me. And I thought, hmm, maybe that card is playable. So it really doesn't take that much to grab some artifacts during the draft. Guild Globe, Mana Geode, God Pharaoh Statue, Saheeli Silver Silverwing iron bully there's artifacts running around there that you're going to want to have the ability to search up and play and if you get two
0: cards off this you're really kind of doing it yeah i had the exact same experience my opponent played it i was like this card's not playable and limited." and then they just like grabbed two innocuous cards out of their sideboard and i was like oh it's a two for one and now i still have to try and kill this planeswalker it does very much of what you expect the uncommon four mana planeswalkers to do except it's a shiny little rare number 16 dread Malkin is a b grade card and does not require setup to be that good So I've been championing this card a lot. It's my most drafted uncommon. I was really happy to have like one or two copies in like all of my blue black decks back when I was like on that little blue black heater of just like drafting it a lot and having a lot of success with it. And I think there's like a sort of a thought that, well, it only goes in red, black sacrifice. And I think that is just not true. The threat of activation is huge. It's a one drop. It has menace. So it's like pseudo evasion to be able to pressure your opponent's planeswalkers. It's a mana sink late in the game. You can like do some shenanigans with a mass, like being able to like sack the one, one before you create another mass token. It just like does quite a lot for very, very little cost. And you're probably not taking it highly enough.
1: I agree. You were the person that put me onto this card. You were telling me it was good and I just trusted you and I played it. And I was like, whoa, Ethan's right. This card's great. So just making sure I think another point that I would add there is listening to the opinion of people who are good magic players who you trust. Oh, shucks. Thanks, buddy. Number 17, God Eternal Oketra and Time Wipe are the two biggest reasons to be white in the entire set. I think this is probably not a super controversial point. I think Time Wipe is the most offensive rare in the set, in my opinion. I really hate losing that because it punishes you for doing what you're supposed to do in the format anyway. You're supposed to get on board, you're supposed to get out ahead of your opponent, and then you just run right into Time Wipe and it's such a feel bad. And God Eternal Oketra, I think, you know, is pretty oppressive, certainly the best God Eternal and pretty unbeatable if you untap with God Eternal Oketra. So make sure you take both of those cards highly and play white
0: when you do. Number 18, Burning Prophet is so much better than you think it is. You were really a huge champion of this card early on. And like, I really get it now. I mean, scry one off any spell allows you to basically never run out of gas in the mid to late game since you're like basically never drawing lands. You're just going to be chaining together spells, bottoming lands or whatever. Plus, it's relevant in the early game. Like it's a good two drop. You know, sometimes it can be a two, three or a three, three. And that's pretty big game from your, your two mana card. That's also allowing you to sculpt the top of your library. Yeah, it's insane. And I think
1: one of the reasons I figured it out was just I had the good fortune to fall into blue-red a couple times early in the format, and I saw how powerful it was, and I was winning. And it's a lot easier, I think, to figure... I was thinking about this with Modern Horizons. I think it's easier to figure out a format when you're winning at the beginning because you know you're doing the right things Mm -hmm. and when you're losing at the beginning of a format you know you're not doing the right things but you don't know what the right things are and it's a lot harder to figure out right what the right things are so i just we just happen to stumble into a lot of the really good archetypes and good decks at the start of the format number 19 bolus the citadel is a very real and very powerful build around i think you're supposed to first pick it over any uncommon or common and i would add command the dread horde to that as well not Mm -hmm. quite as powerful as bolus the citadel but a very similar effect and I think sometimes you have to side both of them out,
0: depending on the matchup, but I think you're supposed to start them, and I think they're very, very good. I think it's best with life gain, so Centaur Nurturer in green, or Bulwark Giant in white, or just in red-black where you're, you feel like you're probably not buying on life anyway, right? You're able to build a sort of assertive red-black deck. It's a nice curve topper. And I think it's worst in blue-black where the card advantage isn't as relevant. Yep, yeah, all makes sense to me. Number 20, Aid the Fallen plus Spellkeeper Weird allows you to recur a Planeswalker infinite times. So there's a couple loops like this in the format. This is probably the most common one to come together. But Aid the Fallen allows you to return a creature and Planeswalker. You can get Spellkeeper Weird back with another Planeswalker, and then Spellkeeper Weird can get back Aid the Fallen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You can also loop Spellkeeper Weird with Plainwide Celebration or Plainwide Celebration with Tameo, Collector of Tales. So be on the lookout for those loops if you are drafting this format. Yeah, I have the pleasure of two different draft decks that have done a lot of those loopy
1: dupes. And the latest one was the one you and I drafted together that we mentioned that's highlighted on my stream. So check it out if you want to see me stressing out (laughs) quite a bit. Number 21, Karn's Bastion is a colorless land worth impacting your mana base for. I think Blast Zone as well, though probably not quite to the extent of Karn's Bastion. And a mobilized district, generally, you're not going out of your way to play. But the ceiling for Karn's Bastion is gavany Township, which is a very good magic card. It's four tap, put a plus one plus one counter on your team. And the floor is pretty high as well, as long as you can afford to run a colorless land. So you then still have a mana sink and you can pump up a creature or
0: a planeswalker or whatever. Just a land that has an ability is a powerful card. Number 22, Sahili Silverwing is a fine include for any deck, especially black green. The card allows you to punch through board stalls and attack Planeswalkers, which is incredibly important for any deck to be able to do. And particularly it shores up a hole in the black green splash everything decks game plan. Like a lot of those times those decks like are good at stalling out and holding the board, but don't really have a way to punch through that board stall. And the 2-3 body also lines up super well against Pegasus, which is kind of part of what makes white worse than it should be.
1: Yeah, every deck has access to a sideboard card that blanks one of your top commons. Number 23, every blue deck wants a copy of Last Steps Blading. I was pretty high on this card coming in, and I think it lived up to my expectations. I think the Amass one tacked on just pushes it over the top, much like it does with a lot of these other situational effects, combined with the fact that blue's strategy generally resulted in you ending up with a 3-3-4-4-5-5 Amass creature by the end of the game that you did, in fact,
0: want to protect. It was basically like negate Amass one, which is a really good card. Mm Mm-hmm. Number 24, Pollen Bright Druid is the best green common. This I would say is a, a hotter take on this list. This is another item on just my long list of why two drops are so important in this format. The fact that you can just get it down on turn two, And it's something that you can then proliferate onto later, if that's what you need to do, if you just want to play it on two. But then later in the game, it just does what you want Bloom Hulk to do. I mean, yes, Bloom Hulk is a giant card in the format. A 4-4-4-4 is great, but Pollenbrite Druid allows you to double spell that turn. And really what you want later in the game is just that proliferate trigger.
1: Yeah, and I think Pollenbrite Druid also drastically fluctuates in power level depending on your deck. Which, you know, at its best, it's very, very, very good. But at its worst, it's a 2-mana two 2-2, which is not super exciting. Which is another reason that green is just slightly worse than the Grixis colors. Number 25, 3-drop Planeswalkers Need Protection. If you want to curve in a Davriel or a sahili you have to have ways to protect them so that you don't just play them on an empty board, because you oftentimes can't cast them if your opponent has played a two drop and you have not. So sometimes this just means running a mediocre to bad card like Wall of Runes or a Vampire Opportunist or something to be able to protect them. I think the more three drop and four drop uncommon Planeswalkers you have, the more incentivized you are to put low drops in your deck.
0: Yeah. I mean, just because those cards are so good, if you can protect them, if you can get two or even three activations off of Davriel, if you're able to let Sahili generate a number of 1-1 tokens, like if it can survive long enough to do that, you're really getting ahead. So you just want to make sure that you can have the protection to allow them to get ahead. Number 26, Return to Nature is a sideboard way to answer God Eternals. There are not a lot of ways to be able to kill these God Eternals forever. So this is one of them, right? You nab it out of the graveyard in response to the, like, tucking trigger. Kasmina's transmutation is a way to deal with it on board. And uh, even forced landing as a way to just kill Kefnet in particular. I mean, kill, quote unquote, puts it on the bottom of the library. But be on the lookout for those, like, few interactions to deal with the God Eternals permanently.
1: Number 27, Ward Scale Crocodile. R&D finally got it right a hex proof creature that wasn't busted in limited it only took making it a 5-3 and putting zero auras
0: in the set at all yeah Number 28, Vraska's Finisher is the first card that should come to mind with weird attacks from your opponent. Obviously, they would have to have swamps in play, but it takes a lot of practice to like really figure out when this card should be like on your radar, and I would think about it a lot, especially if like you're coming back to this episode later on and maybe you haven't played War of the Spark before. This is definitely a card to have on your radar when your opponent makes suspect attacks.
1: Number 29, Cruel Celebrant is a garbage card in this format. And one of the reasons and one of the reasons white black is so weak. And even D Spark, if we're talking white black, isn't a great main deck card, but you were the first person to take the hit for the team on this one. Your very first draft, you had three cruel celebrants, and you O3'd and you texted me and you were like, Cruel Celebrant's garbage, don't put it in your deck. I lived up to that expectation. I never <laughs> cast a cruel celebrant, and I was the beneficiary
0: of many of my opponents casting cruel celebrants. So the reason it's so bad is one, a one, two body is completely irrelevant in this format. So it's basically like a two mana enchantment with this ability tacked on and white black doesn't really have like this. There isn't really this like aristocrat sacrifice deck that we wanted it to be. And if that did exist, it was in red, black where like you weren't trying to splash for this terrible two drop. It just like never did anything. I was always like, what am I supposed to do with this? Am I supposed to chump with it? Like you want it to like, be around long enough to reap the benefits of all the sacrificing or all the your creatures dying to get the drain triggers and also there's like no life gain payoffs in the format anyway it's just terrible I, I, <laughs> I, I could go on and on but i'll stop number 30 heartwarming redemption is a difficult to cast honor of the god pharaoh don't be fooled by it being an uncommon and being gold
1: yeah you pointed this out to me and it was sort of a light bulb moment for me i i kept wanting to make a heartwarming redemption deck where i i had this picture in my mind of this sweet jess guy control deck where heartwarming redemption was going to be really good and i had drafted like two or three of them and finally you were like why are you so excited about this card it's just a bad <laughs> honor the gods pharaoh and i thought about it and i was like oh shoot <laughs> you're right <laughs> <laughs> number 31 palm druid and hawatley's raptor plus pledge of unity is a very powerful five-mana play. Can you explain how this works, Ethan?
0: Okay, so uh, you cast Pollenbrite Druid or Huatli's Raptor. Comes into play, you get that proliferate trigger on the stack. In response to that trigger, you cast Pledge of Unity, putting a plus one, plus one counter on each of your creatures, and then the proliferate trigger resolves from either of those two creatures, and you get an additional plus one, plus one counter. So it basically gives plus two, plus two permanently to your whole team. Even if they didn't have counters on them to begin with, which is pretty awesome. Number 32, the Wanderer is a card I'm happy to main deck in MTGO and paper. Amass, Spellgorger, Weird, and Proliferate make it so even though you maybe on face value, there aren't a ton of large creatures in the set, a lot of creatures can get there. My limited experience, and I wonder if you can back me up here on Arena, is that green decks are less prevalent, and so I think it's more of a sideboard card there. I've I've had it be pretty dead a lot of the times, uh, at least this past week. I'm not playing white on Arena. <laughs> there it is. All right. <laughs> Which
1: takes us to our next point, number 33. If you aren't drafting the Grixis color pairs on Arena most of the time, you're probably doing it wrong if you're trying to maximize your win rate. So I've done 11 drafts this week. I successfully drafted Grixis every time. Wow. And I don't feel like I've forced... Because the cards are just there and those are the best decks. Why would you not want to end up in the best decks if the bots are going to give you an avenue to do that? So I think there are a list of cards. I was thinking about this. Like, what would it take to make me draft green or white on Arena? And here's, here's the short list of cards that it would take for me to draft green or white. Oketra, Gideon, Finale of Glory, Nissa, Plainwide Celebration if I'm looking to have fun, but not, I wouldn't do that if I were trying my hardest to win. Roalesque, Tulsimir. Time Wipe and maybe Feather. I think those are the only cards and I would have to get them like pack one, pick one or pack one, pick two because you're not going to see them pass that and it's not worth audibling in packs two or three for those type of cards. Maybe Oketra you'd audible for, maybe Nissa you'd audible for, but other than that, I think you're just supposed to be drafting Grixis, which is weird because the draft experience was not super interesting or satisfying for me on Arena, but the gameplay was still great. I really enjoyed piloting those Grixis color pair decks. And it's a very similar gameplay experience from Arena to MTGO.
0: Makes me feel better that you listed Feather and Time Wipe there because the love one draft that I did, best of three, was a blue white deck where I first picked Time Wipe, and then I'm I'm now waiting to play another deck that's red white, but I first picked Feather, so uh, that makes me feel a little better about <laughs> finding my way into two white decks this past week.
1: Right, and I think the other thing to to keep in mind is that if you're faced with pack one pick one, you know maybe there's a good green uncommon or a good white uncommon like Evolution Sage or Prison Realm, and there's an Obninsk's Cruelty in the pack two. You should just take Cruelty because then you get a draft a great color pair deck, even though you're taking a hit in power level, which I do not think you should do on MTGO, because on MTGO, you're going to get pushed out of the Grixis color pairs, I think, especially now that people know what they're doing. So if you know ahead of time that you get to draft the Grixis color pairs on Arena most of the time, you just are not supposed to draft green or white unless you really, really
0: have a busted card. Yeah, 100% agree. Number 34, lots of the uncommon walkers are very powerful when they work and very mediocre when they take two damage before their second activation. They require you to build your deck and play in a certain way to make them good. So I think this just like comes back to our point of like this is all about protecting and pressuring planeswalkers. And the difference in games or the differences in getting ahead is about getting that second activation, right? Are you able to get it down minus two and be able to untap and be able to minus two it again?
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of my success in the format was due to mitigating my opponent's planeswalkers. That was priority number one for me. And I think if you're building your deck in a way to minimize your opponent's planeswalkers, then the one or two planeswalkers you happen to pick up also generally are pretty good because you already are on board early because you were planning to pressure your opponent's planeswalkers. And number 35, a charm stray is the real deal if your name is
0: Ethan Sachs. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, uh, Quick points about Charm Straight here. So one, I have a very soft spot for this card is my most drafted comment on Magic Online. I like build around stuff. I like sort of memey stuff, but I think this is maybe beyond a meme. I mean, the legendary 8-cat deck that Ben and I drafted together, I think if you haven't checked out that VOD, that's another plug for something to check out on our Twitch streams. That's on on my channel. But I think Charm Straight allows you to do stuff that I like to do in draft, which is pick a card out of a pack and then wheel a card. And so I think about it like, I think the initial equivalent we made was with Slitherblade out of uh, Amonkhet where, you know, you sort of noticed passing one, maybe two early in pack one and then you see one late in pack three and sort of hedge like well i'm going to take this here and if the other two wheel then i'm like the only person who wants these at the table and i'll reap the benefits of that now sometimes that doesn't shake out and you don't get you know more than three or four and it's not great and you end up not playing them or maybe you do if you've got other synergies and that's the thing that i think is good is that it also makes a johnny's pride mate really strong which is a card that not really anyone else should want going charm straight into pride mate make pride mate a three three it's also very good in like the green white proliferate deck. I think that's where it's shell is best or maybe blue white where we had our eight cat deck. It's a good card or it's a fun card, I think. And if it comes together, I think you're going to have a good time. Yeah, can't argue with that. Number 36, when you have to draft red white, you should treat it similarly to the blue red spells deck. Ben, why don't you talk about this? Yeah, so I've had
1: the the pleasure of drafting red white maybe like three, four, five times and I've trophied with it almost every time I've drafted it. I think I have maybe four trophies in five drafts, something like that. And I think you really want to try to draft it and play it similar to a blue red spells deck. And the very first time I drafted it, I wouldn't have gotten there without Twitch chat's help. Like specifically, I remember Clue Alters was in chat who if you don't follow them on Twitter, you definitely need to. His altars are amazing. But anyway, we ended up building it like a very low creature count deck, I thought, for an aggressive deck. It was like 12 or 13 creatures and backed up then by removal and combat tricks. And it's best when it's heavier red. But, you know, the white cards get there too sometimes. And then you really reap the benefit of that red white gold uncommon is sort of like another spell gorger weird almost with your combat tricks so it plays out and i think is best when it's built very similarly to a blue red tempo spells deck moving on number 37 blue white is the most defensive deck in the format I think I was also fortunate enough to just stumble onto what a winning version of blue-white looks like early on in the format, and it makes really good use of late-pick cards that often wheel, like Ashiok Skulker, Dobin's Veto, Divine Arrow, Bulwark Giant. I mean, Divine Arrow is the best of those, obviously, and even Kazmina's Transmutation, I would add to that list, and I sort of put this deck together because R&D's description of it was stall flyers or something like that. I thought, okay, what cards want to do that? And I just did that, and it actually worked, and that sort of led me to think, well, I just need to start paying a lot more attention to R&D's descriptions of archetypes (laughs) as well, because I had never put much stock in that. So yeah, I think blue-white turtle up, and then just once you take control of the game, you win with an Ashiok Skulker or whatever flyer you've got, and your opponent really doesn't have much
0: chance once you stabilize number 38 flux channeler is worse than you think it is a three mana two two body is borderline irrelevant in combat so it sort of has the cruel celibant problem where like you don't it's a creature but you don't really want to use it as a creature and it dies to even like the bad removal like soren's thirst and then so you really have to like untap and have stuff to proliferate onto i mean it can get out of hand but i think it's just a little too fragile to be like a powerful card that it appears to be at uncommon Right,
1: it's got a huge range. When it's bad, it's really bad, and when it's good, it's really good. But I think more often than not, it trends towards the bottom half of the range. Number 39, Toll of the Invasion is one of the best ways to compete against the busted rares that are floating around, especially if you don't have them. Red, black, commons and uncommons, great. Blue, black, commons and uncommons, great.
0: Just make sure you have two to three copies of Toll of the Invasion in your deck to nab your opponent's busted cards. I keep wanting, I said this already, but I keep wanting Toll the Invasion to be better than Spark Harvest. And for me, it almost is in the sense of like, I'm happy. Obviously, I want like the first Spark Harvest, but there's a ceiling to the number of Spark Harvests I'd play. I'm not sure there's a ceiling to the number of Toll the Invasion's I would play.
1: Yeah, I'm still on Toll number four, but it's it's a very, very
0: good number four black common. Number 40, Goblin Assailant and other quote unquote bad two drops should make the cut more in your deck if you don't get the premium twos. So don't be too proud to play like vanilla two twos in your deck. Dusk Mantle Operative, Vampire Opportunist, like maybe it's a mana sink late in the game. I will say that the two twos are better than the two ones because you don't want to just like get wrecked by a one one amass token. So keep that in mind. But again, board presence people get stuff that protects your walkers and pressures your opponents.
1: I think that comes up a lot. That's a question I've been asked a lot about Dust Mantle Operative versus the Vampire that Drains. And I think exactly what you said. The 2-2 that can still attack into 1-1 one one amass and doesn't get super punished by Blind Blast. That was a card more people started main decking, I think, later in the format. The vanilla 2 are just better than the 2-1s with slight upside. Number 41, Honor the God Pharaoh, is insanely good at smoothing the draws in every red deck. Every red deck wants copies of this card. Red-white wants it. Red-green, I think, is where it's the least impactful or powerful but it still is just guaranteed you're not going to flood if you draw your honor the god pharaoh which is something that red green decks struggle with and then in red black and red blue it's just the nutter butters because you care about the spell you really care about the amass token oftentimes you're sacrificing it to a Heartfire, which i think is another reason this is so good because once you get two copies of honor the god pharaoh you're just pretty excited to have Heartfire in your deck then which is a powerful card number 42 turret ogre has reach Number 43, Arboreal Grazer has a place in green decks that want to protect Planeswalkers and are using New Horizons to splash.
0: So it's a lot of setup there, right? I would also throw like, we haven't talked about Watley and we're not going to on this list, but I think Huatli like is a sort of backdoor deck to get into that can be white green or white blue or white black, the butts deck. And I think Arboreal Grazer plus Watley is like totally fine. Like Grazer is not a good card, but it has a home in, in this set.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. I have played more than my fair share of Arboreal Grazers. And I think the people, you know, Matt Sperling is pretty famous for saying, you know, you're you're mulliganing every time you put Arboreal Grazer in your deck. I just don't think that's true. I think there are some decks that want the card. And I think especially if you've got New Horizons to turn it into a one four reach. That's a very real
0: card in this format. Right. You're just building your own Hitchclaw, Reckless. Number 44, planning to win by attacking on the ground with big creatures and minimal interaction is a fool's errand in this format. And I think the biggest offender of this is challenger troll. I never take Challenger Troll. People are always like, well, what about Troll on on stream? And I just, it just looks like a big, dumb creature to me, and I'm not happy about it. I will say that in later weeks of the format, I started to come around to it being, like, better than I thought it was when my opponents would play it, and I'd be like, oh, this is is somewhat difficult to deal with. Like, if you have an Obnixlis Cruelty, you just feel awesome, or if you have Death Touch, you feel awesome. But, like, non-black players sometimes have issues dealing with that card, but it's not that much better. Like, Thundering Saratok is sometimes even better because the trample is more relevant at pressuring planeswalkers
1: yeah i've been impressed by thundering saratog i think that might be a key to making the green decks more playable because once you have that board built out you prevent your opponent from chumping the turn thundering Saratok comes down so if you can line the turns where you want to swing out with a turn where you're casting thundering Saratok, i think that can allow your green decks to have a little more potency number 45 speaking of green most blue red decks struggle to beat a five toughness creature with reasonable power And you should sideboard accordingly against blue-red decks. I think this really hit home for me when you and I did our first showdown. Mm -hmm. And I was playing blue-red, and you just sighted in, I think, a Lazatep Behemoth or something against me, which is just a 5-4. It was two of those, yeah. Yeah, and all of my removal was three damage. And I mean, sometimes red decks are going to have Heartfire, which I think is why it's even more important to get up to that 5 toughness. But sometimes those decks just cannot beat a big dumb ground creature. And Primordial Worm sometimes, even though it's a bad card...
0: Is a real struggle for blue red decks to deal with. Yeah, I mean, they really just have to hope that their spell or weird gets big enough to be able to tussle with it in combat. Number 46, Ugin's Conjurant is one of the best first picks in the set. And this is another thing that I think came from just me listening to people. Like, I came into the set review being like, yeah, it's like a C, seems good. It's colorless, it's fine, like, it's gonna do work. And then, like, more people were like, no, it's better than that, it's better than that. And then I just started taking it higher and higher and I was not mad about it. It should be picked early in the draft as a B, B plus level card, and that is partially because it's colorless, but also because it's so flexible. It's a two drop when you need it to be a two drop, and it's a great top deck late in the game. It's just like you slam it as a seven, seven, or eight, eight, and it's hard to deal with. Um, It goes down slightly once you know your colors, but it's still really, really powerful.
1: I have a confession to make. When we were doing the crash course and we were giving grades, you and Travis had your grades in first. And when I go to do my grades, I always blank your guys's out so I don't get influenced by your grades. And then I always look and compare afterwards. And I gave Ugin's Conjuring an F when I very first rated this card because I looked at it and I thought, oh, it's like Hearthstone. The damage stays on the card. There's no way that card's good. And then I looked at your grades and I think you guys gave it like a C, C plus. Mm -hmm. I was like, what is going wrong here? What's wrong with me? And then I took some time and I thought about it more. And then I was even higher on it than you guys. (laughs) I think I like C plus B minus because it's if it takes the damage and gets shrinked and is still on the battlefield, it traded for a card. And I think that's the thing that most people miss. And you'd be great. You'd be thrilled to trade for a card and have a 1-1 or a 2-2 body lying around. And heaven forbid you play it later in the game and it's an 8-8 or something. Just like you said. Yeah, very powerful card. Number 47, Guild Globe is better than Mana Geode when it comes to colorless fixing. I'm embarrassed to say this took me about midway through the format to realize. I had Guild Globe pretty low on my order of fixing, and I think it's the best colorless fixing. Just coming down on turn two is a big deal, and oftentimes you don't really care about ramping from three to five. The four drops are really a lot of where you're splashing, so I think Guild Globe, cantripping, and oftentimes you only need a one-shot for splashing anyway, so I think it ultimately does a better job.
0: Yeah, I would put those, those little asterisk here of a caveat of like, if you're doing one-shot fixing, it's definitely better. Like The more greedy your deck is, the more deeper you are into like multiple splashes or multiple cards of a third color, then that's where Mana Geode is going to edge it out. But Guild Globe, I think, definitely gets the nod towards the, the former style of deck. Number 48, drafting a deck that gets as close to the plan of its archetype is very important on Arena and you're incentivized to settle into your draft colors earlier on Arena than you are on MTGO. You're also incentivized to try to stay one color as long as possible as well. This is, uh, we talk about this a lot on our other bot drafting episode, episode 90 that we referenced at the beginning of this episode. But you want to speak a little bit about this, Ben?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, at the start of the draft, if I first pick an Omnix Cruelty, I'm going to try to stay black if I can until I get pushed into blue or red. Or similarly, if I start with a Jaya's greeting, I'm going to try to stay red until I get pushed into blue or black by the bots. Basically, you just want to leave yourself as many options as you can. And staying one color, I think, is even more powerful on Arena than on MTGO because I just don't trust the bots. I don't think the bots are sending signals. They're just they're just doing things on a random pick order. And a lot <laughs> of times, I mean, there's no way to know that, but my gut says that's 100% true at this point. And I think the biggest takeaway from that for me is, or the, the biggest reason I've come to that conclusion is that I was trying really hard to read signals like in Guilds of Ravnica or RNA or things like that. And once I just stopped, drafts got so much easier for me And my decks got so much better. I very consciously have a different approach to drafting on Arena than I do on MTGO. I do not draft the hard way a la Ben Stark on Arena. And I think it leads to me having easier drafts and drafting better decks. Because if you stay in your colors, if you settle into your two colors early, you know what your deck's plan is also. So then you end up with a functional deck that has a goal and a plan. Whereas if you wiffle waffle around trying to read signal and things like that, oftentimes you're scrabbling for playables and or you end up being forced to splash good cards, which you don't necessarily want to do in war. And once you stay one color, then you get to pick the second color that's more open. You know, if you settle into blue or red as your secondary color around pick six, pick seven, and then you're a little more confident that you're going to get that color. Yeah, makes sense to me. Number 49, the prevalence of death touch makes attacking on the ground very difficult. So Vraska just as a planeswalker... Green and white decks really struggle to beat Vraska. Vizier the Scorpion's another one where, you know, heaven forbid you get your Amass thing to trade for something and then you have another Amass card to make another Death Toucher they have to punch through and Crawl Stinger at common. If Death Touch is good against you, I think your deck's in a bad spot.
0: And finally, number 50, don't believe the stigma. This is not a Prince format. So I think this is a pretty big difference from the mentality of our show and I think the community that we have fostered. So yes, there are a handful of Ridiculous Rares and Mythics in the set, but I would say that good decks, draft in and draft out, a consistent great deck is built off the backs of a good curve of commons and uncommons. I don't think that a bad deck with a God Eternal Khetra Ketra is going to get there. I would take a like good version of an archetype built off those commons and uncommons any day of the week.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. I have at least two to three trophies that I can think of with a very good two color common and uncommon deck with a God Eternal like Oketra or something sitting in the sideboard the trophied. And I think that's the way to do it. The God Eternals, even speaking of, aren't really the scourge of the format, in my opinion. I think it's the overpowered rares like Time Wipe, Nyssa, Sarkin, and are the God Eternals that you see a lot more frequently and I think are even more powerful than a lot of the God Eternals. Yeah, I'd agree. I add
0: Ugin on that list as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. I forgot about Ugin. Yeah. All right, that's it. 50 takes. Go crush your drafts with this wealth of information. Yeah, War's
1: going to be around on Arena, I guess, what, for two more weeks-ish? Maybe a little longer than that. And it's going goodbye on mtgo as soon as core 2020 releases so make sure you get those leagues in while you can and it'll be back on arena and i do think i like this format enough that i will be back drafting it when it becomes a competitive format on best of one on oh that's that's a hard pill
0: for me to swallow best of one is is a yikes for me buddy it is but i i do love war of the spark so i'll be back I'm into it i feel like we didn't it was not here long enough and it got sort of overshadowed by modern horizons a little it bit It really like, wasn't it got shortchanged pretty hard for how good of a set it was i agree Well, i think it also got a bad rap i feel sorry for it i yeah. think war
1: was a great set and i think it has this super bad reputation as this terrible bomb heavy format and
0: i just that's just not the case well i think if you only draft it like once or twice or whatever like you can get some real feel bads real early and real often and i think that can lead you to just being like no i'm just gonna write this format." off as just a bomb heavy set. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, it really does take diving below the surface, as they say, the inner beauty of War the Spark. That's right. It's not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside for war.
1: Okay, that's a great place to wrap us up. <laughs> Thank
0: you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. We're talking a lot about these sweet, sweet VODs. Come check out our Twitch channels. I'm at twitch.tv slash Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. And we're under those same usernames on Twitter. And you can, of course, tweet at the podcast at lordsoflimited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And I can't believe it, but I think next week is going to be the corset crash course already. So hopefully we'll see you then for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.
1: eternal oketra and time wipe <laughs> w h i p e
0: yeah cuz you're wiping your opponent right wipe time wipe oh my god <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat>